Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Um, let me begin by first acknowledging and celebrating the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and paying our respects to their elders, the Ngunnawal people, past and present. On this occasion, I especially offer respect to the Ngunnawal women who have shown great resilience in the most challenging circumstances and um, pay respect to their role in guarding the culture um, over the generations. Good afternoon to you all, distinguished guests, Sex Discrimination Commissioner Elizabeth Broderick, Vice-Chancellor Professor Ian Young, um, friends of the Gender Institute from throughout uh, the community of Canberra and colleagues and students here at the ANU. My name is Fiona Jenkins and as the convener of the ANU Gender Institute, I'd like to welcome you to this third anniversary celebration. Our Vice-Chancellor Ian Young will shortly introduce our very distinguished guest speaker for today. I'd also like to extend an especially warm welcome to our Gender Research Prize winners who will be receiving their awards in the second half of the ceremony today. Now, when the Gender Institute was first launched uh, three years ago by the Governor-General of Australia, um, Quentin Bryce, the topic for our forum was the future of feminisms. And today that topic is going to be revisited with a very specific inflection as we hear about the role of men in contributing to advancing gender equality. There's a very provocative question that's been much in the media recently, which is, can men be feminists? Intriguingly, Prime Minister Tony Abbott declared himself a feminist on International Women's Day, <laughs> while Senator Michaelia Cash, the minister assisting him as Minister for Women, declared that she would not call herself one. And I wonder what strange times these are when men are the new feminists. I don't want to preempt the discussion we're about to engage in on that challenging question, but I do briefly want to take a chance to relate some of these questions to the work the Gender Institute's been doing over the last year. The Gender Institute, as many of you will know, has a double mandate to extend and deepen gender-related research, education and outreach, but also to promote gender equality at the ANU. And this is a unique and very productive model, I think, it's one that acknowledges a high degree of mainstreaming of gender research in many parts of academia, whilst also taking account of the extent to which universities as institutions continue to preserve very deep patterns of gender inequality. Our research and education on gender has a global reach, but we can't ignore the issues that are in our own backyard. Now, over the past year, through our small grant scheme, we've been able to support projects in a great range of fields. And I'm just going to give you a very few highlights. Um, Dame Carol Kidu came from Papua New Guinea to give a distinguished lecture on sorcery and witch-related killings in Melanesia. Sharon Bagwan Rolls came and spoke about local and global feminism from a Pacific perspective as part of the first annual civil dialogue on Australia's National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security, which was hosted here at the ANU. There was a conference by the Feminist Historians Collective, Lilith, 
which looked back at the lives of women without men, spinsters, widows, and deserted wives in the 19th century and beyond. And you should look out for the debate that's coming up next week on whether we still need women's history with our own Marnie Hughes-Warrington, Angela Woolacott, and Kim Rubenstein all participating. Now, that's really just a tiny sample of some of the research that we've been uh, able to support. And on the Gender Institute website, you'll find um, much more detail about the many th events that we've been very privileged to be associated with, as well as details of many upcoming events. So I hope you all look at that regularly. I'd like to thank everyone who's been involved in making all these things happen. And as we've just announced our next grant funding round, do please consider putting in an application. We'd love to hear from you. Now, we also last year supported a series of seminars on women in academia, and we uh, helped some targeted gender equity-related research, for example, on gender differences in the PhD experience at ANU. A practical workshop for graduate students doing gender research was run by Dr. Kathy Burnwell, with input from many other academics in the Gender Institute. And I went along and had the most fantastic morning hearing about the incredible range of topics and interesting work that people are doing on gender um, in a wide range of disciplines. Now, I think it's a very encouraging sign that exceptional gender research is no longer the sole preserve of women, especially in the upcoming generation of students. And we will see that recognized in our prize giving shortly. But likewise, men at ANU are becoming increasingly engaged with gender equity issues. And on International Women's Day at ANU, Nobel Prize winning astronomer Professor Brian Schmidt spoke about the initiatives that he is involved in aimed at making improvements for women in science. And this reflects a very strong international trend with programs like the Athena Swan program in the UK, which Australia really can't afford to lag behind. We were delighted to when our Vice Chancellor took the opportunity on International Women's Day to announce a series of measures he's introducing to advance the status of women at ANU, including chairing a gender equity oversight committee. However, driving cultural change at ANU, the change needed to support these initiatives and to make them effective agents of change, is going to be a very demanding process. And we all need to be engaged in challenging institutional norms. So if the vast majority of speakers at a conference are male, we need to ask why, and we need to ask perhaps whether we want to continue participating in such a conference if nothing can be done to alter that. If women in a particular area still have lower academic status than the men, if they're predominantly on temporary contracts while the men are predominantly on permanent ones, or if what the women are doing is regarded as low status and relatively unimportant compared to the roles the men are playing, then we asked why, and we need to ask what can be done about it. There's plenty to do to address chilly climates at ANU, and of course elsewhere. We're not alone in having these serious issues to address. I've been in more than one meeting recently where the term Rolls-Royce scheme has been used to describe the costs of doing something serious to assist women in maintaining and progressing their careers. And these are costs that under present budgetary conditions are often deemed to be unaffordable. And again, I think this reflects a national mood and the use of the term Rolls-Royce scheme to speak of the Prime Minister's planned support for paid parental leave. 
But it's quite an objectionable term, I think, implying that women are going to be carried around in some great expensive limousine, when in fact these schemes are more equivalent to being able to get around with the kids in an affordable old hatchback. <laughs> and when at an institution like the ANU, 77% of the staff at professorial levels are men, and 79% of senior leadership, I sometimes find myself wondering if we might also detect if not a Rolls-Royce scheme, then at least a very good inkling of who's been given the keys to the Ferrari. <laughs> so if men are to be champions of gender, gender equality change, if they're to be feminists, if you will, then this will surely be on the basis of following in the trailblazing path of women who bravely questioned every aspect of gendered organisation in their society. We need robust and holistic questioning of where support and reward is going in our society, and within our own institutions. Feminism, as we discussed in our inaugural Gender Institute Forum, comes in generational waves. And I hope we're going to hear much more about how feminist social, political, and academic leadership is starting to be honored, acknowledged, and developed by a new generation, people who take seriously the commitment to equality, whatever their gender. Thank you. to invite uh, ANU Vice-Chancellor Professor Ian Young to step forward to properly welcome and introduce our special guest. Thank you. Well, thank you, Fiona. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I add my welcome here today to the third anniversary of the Gender Institute. I have to say I've got a 100% attendance record. I've been at all three of these functions uh, so far. So I'll have to... Uh, yeah, no. I've created a precedent now I have to live up to. Uh, look, it's my very great pleasure this afternoon to uh, welcome our guest speaker, Elizabeth Broderick. Before her 2007 appointment as Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Elizabeth had a very successful career as a partner in a large legal firm. And of course, I think if you know anything about the legal industry, you know, um, I think as a, particularly as a, as a junior uh, 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 lawyer in some of these companies, it's really... A, a cutthroat environment. But Elizabeth really, I think, changed the norm. She set a, a rare precedent by maintaining this, a, this leadership role that she had in this position, but doing it on a part-time basis while she brought up her young children. And she was also influential in changing the practices within that firm so that others could also follow in those same footsteps. Around the time she won the Telstra Businesswoman of the Year Award in 2001, uh, Elizabeth took the time to write a short note to herself about her goals. They included a vision for Australia as a country with improved work-life balance. To fail this, she reckoned, uh, would waste Australia's greatest attribute, uh, its climate, its land, its natural environment. So giving people leisure time to be able to enjoy this while still working productively, she felt, uh, would be a huge uh, factor in attracting and retaining great workers here in Australia. It's this kind of creative thinking and capacity to build a business case uh, for change that has very much uh, seen her role uh, as Sex Discrimination Commissioner be so successful. It's a role that has brought many major issues to the spotlight. For example, Elizabeth led the Sex Discrimination Review into the treatment of women at the Australian Defence Force Academy and the Australian Defence Force more generally, tabling her report in 2012. During her term, she has been committed to improving gender equality 
through the advocacy in a number of areas, including preventing violence against women and sexual harassment, improving lifetime economic security for women, balancing paid and unpaid caring responsibilities, promoting women's uh, representation in leadership, and strengthening gender equity laws, monitoring and agencies. Early on, she recognised that if she was to speak up for women, this also meant speaking to men. And so her male Champions for Change program came into being, which she will discuss today. And I think she's made great strides in this and has developed really quite remarkably in recent years. She's been successful in involving men in very senior roles to give serious backing to the changes needed to bring women into positions of leadership and influence. Her goals are ones which ANU very much does support and ones that we very much want to see develop in the coming years. So ladies and gentlemen, please join with me uh, in welcoming our speaker today, Commissioner Elizabeth Broderick. Thank you very much, Ian, and for that lovely introduction. I forgot about that note that I wrote myself many years ago, so <laughs> good good uh, research on the internet there. So thanks very much for a warm introduction, and I do want to recognise 100% um, attendance rate from the vast chance. I, we won't let that drop. But I also want to recognise Kim Rubenstein, who started the Institute, and also Fiona Jenkins. I mean, the fact that this Institute has been so successful I think comes down very much to the two individuals who have driven it since its inception. And, you know, congratulations to you. And the other thing that's so exciting today is that we're going to be here for the prize giving. Um, and it is, it's the new ideas, the new thought leadership that comes through the Gender Institute, which is just so important in helping us uh, through to new frontiers around gender equality, because as we all know, gender equality is not finished business, not in any country that I look at. And I've just come back from the United Nations um, the day before yesterday, where we were looking particularly at the role of gender in the post-2015 development framework and, and the importance of having a standalone gender goal, which particularly looks at violence against women, which, let's face it, was the missing MDG, but also in ensuring that indicators are streamlined across all the other SDGs. So the Gender Institute's a very exciting initiative which can help us, not just here in Australia, but can help beyond through the connections and researches, research that's um, developed. It will play, uh, I think, a very important role in the attraction, employment and retention of good women and men at the ANU who care deeply about these issues. And it no doubt will position uh, the ANU as one of Australia's leading education institutions. So um, it's terrific to be here and to really start to talk about men because, as Fiona said, can men be feminists? And, look, um, I absolutely agree. If men sign on to the feminist ideals, and I want to say right up front, I'm a feminist right up front, um, then I believe that men can be as effective feminists as women. Um, and I did want to really focus my discussion today on um, one of really, I think it's the most important thing that I've learnt as Australia's Sex Discrimination Commissioner over the last six years. It's an idea that encapsulates all the things um, 
that probably I didn't think in the beginning would be true, but I've learnt to be true, whether it's in the area of women's leadership, international development, the military, or indeed in the area of domestic violence or violence against women. And what I now know, what I've learnt, is that if we are to deliver equality for women, we actually have to focus on men. Uh, and to do this, we have to engage both the head and the heart. We have to make the case for change personal. You see, I came into this role six years ago believing that it was women working together, um, collaborating, agitating, that was going to drive change. And let's face it, without women's advocacy, without the women's movement, without those amazing first and second wave feminists, um, we wouldn't be where we were, are today. Absolutely not. But I did think that all I'd have to do was add my voice um, and mobilise my networks. And I thought this formula would work for women all across the country, particularly at decision-making level. But you know the figures as well as I do. You just have to look in your own institution, in a sense, and every university across Australia. Uh, change is so very slow when we're talking about the sharing of power and we're talking about women at leadership level. And by no means is it all bad. Uh, and I do want to start by acknowledging the very many thousands of successful women um, in leadership who are already driving change in their organisation, who are already setting agendas, signalling possibilities to others. Um, but the raw data does not lie. And it doesn't matter what sector you look at across this country, whether you're looking at the military, the tertiary education sector, even the health sector, you'll see in many a lot of women, but very few at the most senior level. I mean, the basic rule, it's the same. You know, it's as certain as death and taxes is that the further up the organisation you go, the less women you'll see. That's rule, that's rule number three. Um, so we've got a long way to go before we can claim to have harnessed the talent, the creativity and the industry of the majority of our population. Because let's remember, women are not a small minority group. We are the majority at, I think it's about 50.8% of the population. And I think part of it is that at an intellectual level, most of the leaders that I come into contact with, they absolutely understand the business case for diversity and gender diversity at the most senior levels, that is correlated with better organisational performance. That doesn't matter whether you're the military or university, that still holds true. But despite this, and despite program excellence, we really continue to see little change in outcomes. And in my view, there's two main reasons for that. One is that whilst we understand intellectually the case for change, we haven't actually embraced it at an emotional level. So by that I mean our gender schema, and that's the deeply held beliefs we have about gender, the beliefs that form from the minute we put our feet on the ground and we're looking around, what's mum doing, what's dad doing, um, who's caring, who's working, who's got power, who doesn't those deeply held gender beliefs, uh, those beliefs actually clash with the case for change. So we understand the case for change here, we don't get it here. Um, and that makes us difficult to accept a new model, a model where leadership is shared between men and women. So that's the first reason, I think. I think the second reason that change has been so slow is that many initiatives that we've focused on to progress gender equality um, focus solely on engaging and changing women. 
So we do it from the way women network to the way women lead. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've been part of. If we can just fix women, this issue uh, will be solved. Too many organisations look to women alone to change the organisational practices that maintain the status quo. Now, when you think of that, that is an approach that fails to recognise the site of organisational power. Such power resides in the hands of men. So it's a totally illogical approach if we are to see systemic change. So my view is that to see real change, we need an array of strategies. I'm not for a minute saying that we don't need women spearheading um, you know, a lot of the change strategies that exist. And let's face it, that's what's got us to where we are today. But we also need to move forward by engaging men in gender equality. So that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about engaging men, engaging men in the battle for gender equality. Because when I say battle, that's how the chief of army um, has saw it when he delivered his three-minute address to his troops. I don't know if people have seen that um, on YouTube. It went viral. I've recently been travelling around the world at global military conferences. I reckon I've met all 1.5 million of his supporters. I said I've, I've run into them all. Um, and... It was fascinating because after that, um, and, and he is one of the male champions of change, and I'll talk about that strategy shortly, but after that video went out, David picked up the phone, David Morrison gave me a call. He said, look, I don't get it. I mean, you know, what's so interesting like an, about an old fella like me telling people that if you don't treat women well, you can get out of my army? Well, what's so interesting is that powerful, decent men hardly ever stand up and speak about violence against women in such a compelling manner. That's what's so interesting about it. Um, powerful, decent men are vital allies in this struggle. And as I said to him, I said, look, David, when a career soldier looks down the barrel with a steely eye, and he does angry very well, I have to tell you, and takes a stand on behalf of women, it gives permission to every other man to imitate his behaviour without being derided, you know, fear of being derided as a snag or, or whatever. Um, and that was what was so very important, I think, about that particular video. But how do you get a man from being interested in gender equality to actually taking strong action like that? Uh, because, I, I, you know, there are so many great men that I meet every day um, who have good intentions, but how do we move them from interest to action? My strong belief is that if we are to do that, we need to engage both the head and the heart. We need to not just talk about the intellectual case for change, we need to make the case for change personal. And I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about two strategies that I've used to do that. Um, as Ian was saying, that I've been um, leading a review into the treatment of women in Australia's military. Um, actually, and I've got Alex Shahady, who's been assisting me with that work here as well from the Commission. So the team and I have been to over 60 military bases, not just here in Australia, but including Naval Air Force Army bases, training colleges, recruit schools all across the world. Um, we've observed exercises and demonstrations. We've spent time underwater in submarines and um, above water on warships. We've travelled in tanks and armoured vehicles. We're up in Blackhawks and C-130s, C-17s, tactical transport helicopters. And we've also visited six offshore military bases. So we've been out beyond the wire in Afghanistan, um, in Oregon province, as well as elsewhere across the Middle East. 
So it's been a really extensive review and um, we just next week will file the table, the final report into the military in Australia's parliament. And in fact, at that point, we will have done the most comprehensive look at the treatment of women in any military um, across the world uh, in recent times. So we've spoken to thousands of members, we've analysed reams of documents and Interestingly, as we travelled across Australia and beyond, a great many people told us stories. Many of those stories were about just how impressive um, the ADF had been, that the ADF had served them well, particularly during times of pregnancy or the life cycle of women. But I have to say, on occasion, we heard sufficient deeply distressing stories. Um, and often there were stories that had never been told before. And that's when it really occurred to us that, yes, it was important that we heard those stories. We could include them in the report that would be tabled in the parliament. But what was more important was that those people who had power to create change, change in the military system, and let's face it, that's powerful men, that they heard firsthand the personal narratives, that they not only heard the case for change, but that they felt the case for change. So armed with that, we flew in women from all over Australia, many with their mothers, so that the chiefs of a military, so the head chief of Army, Air Force, Navy, so that they could hear and feel what extreme exclusion feels like, what it's like to be on exercise for four or five months when no one speaks to you, what it's like, what it feels like to be sexually assaulted by your instructor the very person that you go to for advice. To understand what it's like to face your perpetrator every day at work, even though you've reported his assault up the chain of command. Uh, to understand what it's like to have your career ruined and your peers ostracise you because you had the courage to speak out. And I vividly remember the first session we held, and I, I started with David Morrison, the Chief of Army, because I had developed a good rapport with him and I knew he was someone who cared at a human level about the troops that he led. Um, and I remember David sitting uncomfortably in his chair, the mother nervously escorting her daughter uh, into the chair beside me, sitting over here, the box of tissues in the middle and the question was where would we begin? How, how, how would we get this conversation going? And it was that courageous young woman, she turned to David and she said, Sir, and he's about 60 layers up from her, Sir, I am so nervous. And you know what he said? He turned to her and he said, Believe me, I'm scared too. And I just thought if our chief of our army could admit that he's fearful about what it is he's about to hear, that actually we've got a chance at change because it does take an authentic and compassionate military leader to actually admit that he's not across everything that he's about to hear. And the chief also heard the pain of mothers, mothers who had encouraged their daughters into the service, believing that the enemy lay outside rather than within. Um, as one mother said, she said, look, I gave you the person I love most in the world and this is how you've treated her. And then to hear at the end, to hear the chief say, and you know, it was, these were such honest conversations to, for him to say, if I could stand in your shoes and take away your pain every day, I'd choose to do that. What happened to you should never have happened 
and I will do everything in my power to make sure it never happens again. So when I see that video and I see David and others coming out like that, they're speaking from a place, I think, of a connection between the head and the heart. Um, as as last year, just last year, International Women's Day, the United Nations asked um, David Morrison and myself to go and deliver the International Women's Day address in the UN. And people were blown away. They couldn't believe that a military leader, who in many countries is the most powerful person in the country, would come and speak so passionately about women. Um, in his address to the United Nations, David Morrison said, sadly it's become clear in recent years that the tribal culture through which we sought to build small teams capable of enduring combat has become distorted, misinterpreted and abused. And the evidence of this was brought home to me in a very personal, poignant and confronting way by Elizabeth Broderick. One day, early last year, she called me and suggested that I needed to hear from some of the women whose experiences she'd been collating. I agreed not reluctantly, but certainly with trepidation. Not long after, I was sitting very uncomfortably and with mounting disbelief through lengthy face-to-face -face meetings with women who had endured appalling physical and emotional abuse at the hands of her fellow soldiers. So much for our pride in looking after our mates. These women had been let down by their leaders and their comrades. They'd been robbed of that irreplaceable component of their individual human personal um, identity, their dignity and self-respect. This was not the army that I'd loved and thought I knew. My disbelief gave way and turned to shame that this had occurred in an institution to which I'd devoted my entire life and of which I was so fiercely proud since I was a young boy. That was my conversion experience, and it had all the qualities of a road to Damascus, apart from the fall of a horse. I hastened to add that I'd already concluded that the bad apple theory was a comforting self-delusion. Uh, police forces throughout Australia only started to come to grips with systemic corruption when they came to the same realisation. Cultural problems are just that. They're systemic, ingrained, not the work of a few rogues. And um, when I look back over the work that we've done in the military, I think on those cut few weeks where we worked to bring the personal stories to the most powerful men in Australia's military, that's when the energy shifted. That's when we've seen um, a lot of significant progress made. And if you're still interested in that, watch for the tabling of a report on uh, next week um, because that will just show you how far Australia's military has developed. Um, I just want to spend a few minutes then talking about the male champions of change strategy because once again it's about delivering equality for women through having a focus on men but it's in a different environment and mainly in the corporate world uh, uh, and of course in government. So at the time, two, it was almost two and a half years ago, we embarked on what turned out to be quite a controversial strategy uh, known as the male champions of change strategy. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, establishing a group of men was met with a high degree of suspicion and scepticism. You know, people and particularly women were saying to me, what are you doing? Uh, are you, um, you know, are you asking corporate knights to come galloping in in shining armour and save us in territory we've actually occupied for years? Uh, actually, no. What I'm trying to do is recognise the site of organisational power and work with power in the country. 
Um, and I'm no idea, I have no idea how personally the MCCs view themselves. Maybe some do have a penchant for bravado in their spare time. But as their convener, I'm interested in results. That's what I care about. And I see this group as just one string to our collective bow. Uh, a recognition that as Gordon Cairns, who's one of the champions, who's just been appointed as the um, chair of the D David Jones board, um, he said, let's not pretend that there aren't already established norms that advantage men. Men invented the system, men largely run the system, men must change the system. And that's what the male champions of change is all about. It's about men changing the system. Uh, so how did it start? Well, I'd love to say I got some really great research and you know analysis and whatever. No, basically I identified 25 powerful men and I picked up the phone and I started ringing. Um, and I rang some of us, uh, some of the men who led Australia's iconic companies like Telstra, like Woolworths, like ANZ, like CBA. I rang men who led local arms of global organisations like Deloitte's, like Citibank, like Goldman Sachs, and then I rang some men in government. Martin Parkinson, the fantastic champion of change, head of the Treasury. I rang um, in what head of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and then I brought in David Morrison from the military. And I said to the, these men, I made a personal case. Um, I took them through the data, um, and I asked them, would you use, will you use your power and influence your collective voice and wisdom to create change for women in this country. That's what I'm asking you. And I remember the first conversation I had, it was with the CEO of IBM, Glenn Borum, a fantastic male champion. And I took him through the data, and then, uh, you know, about the lack of women at leadership and whatever, and I, I, he was interested because he has had twins, a boy and a girl. And I helped him understand that actually without systemic intervention by powerful, decent men like him, his daughter would never have the same opportunities as her twin brother. And for him, he got the human rights case for change. Where do I sign up there? <laughs> um, I'd like to say all the men got it on the human rights basis, but some of them didn't. I had to go really hard on the productivity case and the issues around um, capability. Uh, but it didn't matter how they got it, the fact is they were in that room a month later uh, and it was a boardroom full of A-type personalities and me. Uh, <laughs> these men having cleared their diaries and some of them travelling thousands of miles to attend. And I really saw at this, that initial meeting, it was awkward. They were still a bit, um, you know, we're doing everything well and this is our great project. Well, the conversation was awkward initially, but I saw in the words they spoke and the fact that they'd they'd really made a commitment to come, that um, there was a deep desire to take action. And it was almost like uh, Mike Smith from the ANZ describes it as a self-help group minus the hugs. Um, <laughs> as one man said on that day, the first day, he said, you know what, fellas, this is not beyond our intellectual capability to solve. Excuses are just that. And um, that's... While rhetoric's important, they understand that it's action that creates change. Uh, and they meet, just to give you a quick rundown, they meet, at, initially it was four times a year, they've really upped the um, tempo and they meet much more regularly than that. No delegates accepted and that was a stroke of genius when I look back on that now to say from day one, if you can't come, no one comes. Because if that wasn't, if I think if we hadn't put that in, it would have been devolved down to the head of 
diversity, the head of talent, who no doubt was a really capable woman. This was about men stepping up, taking action. So um, the, the, uh, just to give, give you a, uh, an idea of a, a few practical examples, uh, one of the things um, that they did initially was to take the panel pledge, and Fiona referred to it um, in the beginning. These men, now, they will not speak at events where there's not good gender balance. Um, so when they get an invitation in, they ring, someone rings and says, look, you know, so-and-so's a male champion of change. I need to know how many women will also be speaking at this event. And some of them have substituted for their speaking spot and put women forward. I had to call from um, Asia because they're speaking over, around the world. I worked out they speak at a thousand events in a year from aviation, treasury, security, you name it, across the whole gamut. Um, and I got a call from a, a conference, a big conference organiser in Asia last month to say, you know, we're in crisis. The keynote speaker who's the head of one of your biggest financial institutions has said he'll pull out of the address unless we get more women. Where are these women? Um, and I'm getting a lot of calls like that. So I have to say they recognise that actually we need to give visibility to women if we are to grow women into leadership roles. And the first step to visibility is actually getting on some of the speaking panels and whatever. Um, so that was one of the things. The Leadership Shadow, which will be launched next week in Sydney and in Melbourne, um, it's a, a model that they've developed around four attributes. What I say, how I act, what I measure and what I prioritise. Because they recognised early on that they wanted to be champions for gender equality, but when they went out around their organisations and elsewhere, they never really spoke about it. They spoke about profit and loss, you know, employee turnover, things like that. They weren't speaking about gender equality. So they've actually measured themselves according to those four dimensions. They've developed with some external assistance the model for a leader that's doing this particularly well and they're plotting a migration path from where they are to where they want to be and they'll be launching it to all business leaders in Australia um, on... Uh, Thursday next week in Melbourne and then the week after in Sydney. So if you're interested, watch that space as well. Um, they've decided that between them they have huge purchasing power, tens up to 100 billion annually, and they've got um, many, many suppliers. We're talking up to maybe 100,000 suppliers. Actually, um, what they want to do is work with organisations that care about gender equality just like them and recognising that through the supplier multiplier initiatives they have, they can actually create change through the supply chain. So that's small and medium-sized businesses as well. So they're working with their partners um, to get their partners to own gender balance as well. Um, and these conversations are having quite a deal of impact. I mean, I, I see Michael, well, one of Mike Smith was quoted the other day saying that he would move... Um, business if organisations didn't get with the gender equality program. So it's interesting to see. I mean, I think over time that supplier multiplier will have huge impact. Um, they're taking the lead on gender reporting. So you might have seen the gender diversity debates that have been happening over the last month. The government possibly thinking they might cut back on gender reporting as part of their red tape, stripping out red tape. It was women who came out for sure. We came out and said, no, gender reporting is not red tape. It's critical for moving forward. But you know what? It was when those men came out, Martin Parkinson so clearly, Stephen Roberts, Kevin McCann, all those male champions came out and said it's not red tape. What we've seen now is the government's moved away from that and the gender reporting will remain unchanged. <coughs> um, 
they're, um, they're doing something which they call disrupt the status quo. They're asking the question 50-50, if not, why not? That is, if women make up 50% of a population, why am I not seeing them on the graduate intake? Why are we not seeing them on our board? Why are we not seeing them on the leadership development program? And just asking that question actually surfaces a lot of the bias that exists. And just to give you one example, um, there, one of the banks was uh, having their global leadership program and the, the, you know, the CEO saw that only 22% of people on the program were female. So he said, well, if women make up 50% of the population and in this bank, why am I not seeing them here? Oh, oh, sorry, there's been a mistake. We've left a few women out. Came back again. Oh, it's 26%. No, you're not understanding me. And where it got to, to cut a long story short, was that when they looked at the criteria, one of them was you had to have worked in an overseas office or run an overseas office. Now, for women with caring responsibility, that was never going to be um, an option. So the CEO helped people understand, well, what are we trying to get at there? We're getting at global mindset. Okay, let's change that. Have you got a global mindset? On that basis, they got up to 48% women. Um, and he said it was one of the best courses that they'd run. So these are just some of the small um, things that the male champions are doing. The other thing that was fantastic was they launched their, uh, one of their reports in November last year. They wanted the event to be a change event, so they went to invite every chair of a board that had no women on it. They went to every CEO who had uh, very few women in their executive team, and they invited in all the naysayers um, to help carry on this conversation. The other thing is they wanted, their key for success was more men in the room than women. And we had almost 60% of that room filled by men. They're driving change in their own organisations. They're getting out speaking about it. They've done more than 200 events on women's leadership um, in the last year and a half, not just around Australia, but New York, New Zealand, Washington, Brazil, Rio, um, uh, other countries. And I, I just went yesterday to launch the first report of a Queensland male champions of change group, because what we're seeing is spin-offs in every state and territory. And I went and there was 10 men, all from either mining, engineering, automotive, you know, really male-dominated industries in a facilitated discussion on the change. They had 1,000 people in the audience. 1,000 people in Queensland came to see the launch of their report yesterday. It was, it was really terrific um, to see that. And the other thing that I'm so excited about is that this model of male champions is being adopted across the world. So in emerging economies, because it is a strategy around power. So it doesn't matter whether it's a group of male religious leaders, for example, male sporting icons. It's about creating those who have power in a community to step forward and make change. So I just want to finish now by saying that while the male champions of change will start to change corporate and, and other environments and the military cultural reform is progressing well, none of this will matter if we don't change the informal social structures that sit around us and exist within the family. Um, and that just becomes so clear in the work that I do globally in development, but it's absolutely the case here as well. And I think that's where the Gender Institute can really have some significant impact. Because the question is, are we prepared to put to one side 50% of the creativity, the talent, the skills, the wisdom of our population or, and looking globally of the world's population? Because that's what's at stake if we don't make progress on gender equality. I believe that we have the beginnings of change 
We have a path to a more equal future, but it starts with us. And when people ask me, what's going to be your greatest achievement as Australia's Sex Discrimination Commissioner? I don't talk about the military or the male champions. I say it will be raising my son to believe that equality is the only path. That's the greatest contribution I make. Now, it is a bit of a work in progress, I have to say, but I'm working <laughs> on it. Um, so congrats to the Gender Institute on its third birthday. It's such um, a privilege to be associated with the Gender Institute and with all the amazing academics and students and a great delight to be here to see the prize giving this afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for a very stirring address, Elizabeth. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was also privileged to hear Wendy McCarthy talk. Uh, one of the questions from the floor was about growing inequality between women. And I wonder if you would reflect on the focus on leadership, and particularly in high-level settings, what that might be doing as an unintended consequence uh, in relation to that specific issue. So the issue is around growing inequality amongst women? Correct. Yeah. No, it's such a great point because I think when we look at women in leadership, um, if you just look at it without the broader connection to gender equality, then it can be a debate really about educated white women doing well. That, that can be the positioning and the women on boards debate and those debates actually I think are at risk of becoming debates about that. Um, and in fact, it was interesting though, because actually I went um, just the last week, Catalyst have launched in Australia. They're a kind of US think tank and they're very much focused on women on leadership. But one of the interesting things is that I think um, what was said there and what, what I've always thought is that while women are excluded from economic power in this country, they will be marginalised all across the country. So that's why some of those women's leadership debates are very, very important. And it was really brought home to me when I was recently travelling through the refuges around Australia and I often go to safe houses and refuges all across the country. And I, I went to one, um, this is a few months ago now, and a woman who'd been, who'd come in with her children the night before escaping an abusive relationship, I met her the next morning and she said, oh, Liz, how are we going with the women on boards debate? Oh my God, you could have knocked me over. I mean, hello, you know, you've got to keep alive and you're asking me how we're going with the women on boards. But when I started to talk to her about it, it was very much she believed that if women didn't have economic power, then women like her would always be marginalised. So when I, um, you know, when I talk about the women's leadership, I try and keep it very much connected to um, the, the more general debate around gender equality for the very reason um, that, that you you know, that you posit there. I do think also, if you looked at what is probably the greatest human rights abuse that's happening in the country today, it is violence against women. 
Um, that's globally, and in fact, I'm fortunate to sit on the World Bank's global, um, their gender advisory board, and we learned a couple of months ago that the number of women living in intimate relationships characterised by violence has now outstripped the number of malnourished people in the world. Um, these are some World Health data. So, you know, we're at epidemic proportions on that, and you know, we don't have to go and look at Papua New Guinea or Vanuatu to see that data. We can look right here in our own country in Australia. So um, I do think that all those issues are related. If we can share power more evenly, if we can have a more gender equal country, then it should have an impact on what's the greatest human rights abuse in Australia today against women. Thank you. Uh, bringing it to universities where yeah. we are, yeah. and I mean, your the work you've described is really inspiring. I'm wondering, universities, I think, around Australia and internationally have always been very bad on the promotion yeah. of women, recognition of women. What, in your experience, have you encountered this in your international and national and local work? That's the first question. And secondly, what suggestions do you have for us? What can we do about it? Yeah. You're absolutely right. It seems that tertiary institutions, educational institutions, are you know particularly bad at this. I mean, I think if I look at the data around, um, thanks for that. If I if I look at the data around universities, I think at professorial level, it's about 14% um, of professors are female across Australia. And when you think about that, that's coming off a base of 60% of graduates from tertiary education are women. And in terms of lecturers, say it's a more junior level. Uh, the majority, maybe 55%, I don't know, will change by university, but the majority of lecturers are female as well. So that basic rule is the higher up you go, the less women you see is absolutely true in universities. And um, from my experience, and I have to say, Hilary, I haven't looked in the data in a lot of detail from uh, universities around the world, whether those American universities are doing better than Australia, I'm not exactly sure. But I do think if I take some of the learnings from the male champions of change and the male-dominated industries there, firstly, this issue is clearly a leadership issue. Um, it needs to be led from the top. That's number one. Number two is I think targets are very important. And I don't know many <coughs> universities that have actually set a publicly stated target. Um, near, well, every corporate is now required to under the new measurable objectives recommendations for the ASX. Um, and the male champions have even gone one step further than that. Not only are they setting the target and whatever, but they're measuring CEO minus one, CEO minus two, CEO minus three. Because that allows you to compare the army with IBM, for example. Um, and it's interesting because I'm hearing more and more that good female talent wants to go to organisations. Um, where these issues are being actively discussed and addressed. So I think the act of setting the target, it's not so much the target that you set, it's the act of setting the target which drives innovation in the strategies. Because if you've got a target that you're shooting for, as you are in every other aspect of your business, and your strategies aren't delivering, you're more likely to throw them out and try something else. So I think leadership, setting the target, and then of course measure, measurement and monitoring. Um, and I think, you know, if even just to put in place those few things would make a huge difference. Because to be honest, we've got to break some of the underlying assumptions. I mean, in the military, um, one of the things they've done is their leaders have always come from what we call the armed cause. Now, they were cause which were not open to women. So infantry, you know, um, 
pay, what they call PYs, but, you know, commanders of ships, those t- fighter jet pilots. Well, you were never going to get a female military leader at the highest level because you, the only men were coming up there. So what they've done is actually said, no, why, why is that the case? Good leaders can come from a whole variety, including logistics, supply and everything else. So they've actually changed that underlying assumption. And I think that's the same in universities. We need to start to unpack some of the underlying assumptions, which may look neutral on their face, but when you unbundle them, may reproduce disadvantage for a certain group. And in universities, that group would be women, particularly women with caring responsibilities. So there, I mean, just some initial suggestions without having any doing any research or whatever on it, but that I think would be useful. And I think that public accountability and saying, you know what, we want to be the best at so many things. We want to be the best research institution, the best at this, the best. Why couldn't we the best be the best at gender balance as well? Because when we, there's no question that there's so much data which shows that gender balance, particularly at senior level, is <laughs> correlated with better performance. And if that's what you want, that's what we need to shoot for. Thank you, Liz. That was very inspirational. Um, I wonder whether you have ideas about the way that the male champion of change message might best be translated to people in rural Australia, mm. which is a, obviously traditionally um, saturated in male dominance. Yeah, and it is. We, I've just been travelling around to rural Australia as well because we, I'm leading the inquiry into pregnancy discrimination and return to work discrimination. And actually, watch this space. 7th of April, we'll have Australia's first ever prevalence data on the levels of discrimination against women in pregnancy and on parental leave, but we'll be one of the only countries that has it for men on return to work after parental leave as well, so it should be good. Um, And, you know, when I got out to those, a lot of the regional and rural areas, some of the young women who were talking to me said they often, they see the ad in the paper they pick up the phone and ring the number and say, oh, look, I'm really interested in your job. One of the first questions they're asked is, are you a woman of childbearing age? Um, which is unbelievable, you know, in 2013, 2014. Um, I can't tell you some of the stories that I've heard as I've been out and travelling around. So it is... Um, and the other thing about that is the propensity for those women to ever speak out is so low because they're in such a tight and closed labour market that if they speak out they'll be the troublemaker in that particular area. So I do think in rural areas um, the work maybe that the supplies, you take Woolworths um, and some of those large organisations looking down their supply chain and helping, it is about helping um, smaller businesses understand that this is this is important. It's not necessarily about just taking a business away from them, but helping them understand and pursue some of the gender equity strategies that we've been talking about. So I do think the supplier multiplier will have an impact, but I do think it's about men talking to other men. If we're going to create changes as men, taking the message of gender equality to other men, and that also goes um, in regional Australia. Through organisations like Aki, COSBOA, that we work quite closely with as well, Third thing on that is building gender equality into the national school curriculum. And I think that's some of the most exciting work the Australian Human Rights Commission has done in the last uh, couple of years is to build it into every subject from age five right through to year 12 um, into the maths. So you look at maths, you look at the gender pay gap. You look in your picture book at age five, you've got male (coughs) 
carers and nurses and you've got female engineers and scientists as well. So we're trying to change the gender schema, which is one of the reasons I think that change has been so slow. Can I just ask a follow-up yeah. to that? Because, um, you know, just to bring it back to the university again, the idea that this is a very closed labour market mm. I think is very true in our sector too. And so it can often be very hard to complain about the way yeah. someone's been treated. Um, what do you advise people? Yeah, it is hard because I see it in the military as well. You dare to speak out. Um, and we saw it in our pregnancy consultations that women wanted to have... That we had the highest number of submissions we've ever had for anything, but most of them were given to us on a confidential basis. They weren't happy for them to be um, publicised on our web. So um, I think what we need to do is really... You have to move to what I call a safe reporting environment. ADFA's are possibly an example of it in, in that they're changing. So we're seeing more and more incidents of sexual assault or whatever coming out of ADFA. That's terrible, absolutely. But what I'm thinking I'm seeing is a change in the reporting culture there. So we know that, um, you know, that to get more reports, what we have to do, three things. The research shows that um, people have to believe they're working in an organisation that has a zero tolerance. So it might be for discrimination or sexual assault, number one. Number two, they have to know that they won't be victimised if they do speak out. And number three, they have to know that action will be taken. So what we need to do is to work to create organisations which um, pick up on each of those three attributes because when we do that, we move to a safer reporting environment. And I think we'll see a lot more stuff come out of ADFA. Um, not because ADFA's got worse. I don't believe that at all. In fact, our research conclusively shows it's getting better, but actually the reporting environment's safer. And not only that, if I know something and I'm not speaking out about it, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble um, there now as well. So I do think it's, it's been a shift. One final question. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. Um, I think watching Formula One motor racing is less interesting than watching paint dry, <laughs> by and large. Um, but I was delighted to see recently that for the first time in 20 years, I think it was, there was a woman driver in the race in Melbourne recently. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I saw a photograph of her and she was an attractive looking woman. But she made the comment that, do you think Williams would let me drive one of their cars if they didn't think I was capable? Um, I'm ashamed I can't remember her name, but I was yeah. delighted at yeah. the, the coverage. Yeah, no, that's great that they're bringing women. To, we need women in elite sport. Um, you know, that's a work in progress because elite sport is just so important in our country and it's all men's sport. Even now we've seen basketball coming in. Um, it's elite men's basketball. Yeah, so anyway, that's a work in progress. After the churches and everything else, we'll get on to that one. <laughs> Fantastic, wonderful work. Thank you. That, that was very, very inspirational and, and full of wonderful ideas that I hope we can take to, uh, back to ANU, our own backyard. Um, we, 
And now moving in our final half hour to uh, award our student prizes for excellence in gender research completed in 2013. Um, and our vice chancellor will be awarding um, certificates and prizes. Let me first thank the other Gender Institute members who were involved with me in deciding the awards. Gillian Russell, Margaret Jolly, Michelle Antoinette, Angela Woolacott, Kuntalo Luhari Dutt, Hilary Charlesworth and Kim Rubenstein all gave uh, time over the summer to read the work, but all reported that it was just a, a huge pleasure and that the level of uh, quality of the research was absolutely outstanding. Um, our criteria were quality in the specialist disciplines or field, as well as evidence of how far the work advanced feminist theory and studies of gender or sexuality and or sexuality. Um, and the prizes were awarded in the following categories. A journal article published in 2013 by an ANU graduate student of $500, uh, an undergraduate honours thesis, a prize of $500, a master's thesis, a prize of $500, and a PhD thesis, a prize of $1,000. Now, not all our award winners are able to be here today, unfortunately, to accept their awards, but we'll read the citations for their wonderful um, research and congratulate in their absence where, where they can't be here. Um, let me begin with the journal article, which will be announced by Professor Kim Rubenstein. I'm getting to go first for a couple of reasons. One is that unfortunately I have to leave after I've made my announcement for a flight that I have to catch and I'm sorry I can't stay to um, mingle further with everyone here. And I just did want to take the opportunity, given my prize winner is not here, so there'll be a minute extra for me, to, uh, <laughs> to just um, acknowledge uh, Liz, because I won't be able to at the end, for the amazing, phenomenal, sensational contribution that you've made to the debate and the discourse in this country and to practical change. And I feel really honoured to have um, witnessed and participated to the extent that we have been able to in the Gender Institute. And I wanted to thank you for your acknowledgement, but to really say that something that is quite, um, I think, affirming of an institute like this is that even though there is an individual as convener, it really has been a collective endeavour. And I'm looking at Hilary Charlesworth, I'm looking at Angela Woolacott, I'm looking at Inga Saris, I'm looking at Margaret Jolly. Um, it is a collective endeavour. The research, the um, management committee really has acted as one and one of us has taken on the role as convener due to others' responsibilities, but it really has been um, a wonderful thing to be involved with. And, and Ian, this I understand was the very first event that you did publicly as, as Vice-Chancellor, so it adds to the significance of you, um, I'm sure, becoming a male champion in the, um, your own time. Yeah. And in that theme of male champions, our winner of the journal article, who unfortunately couldn't be here, nor could his supervisor, Professor Andrew Will, uh, Walker, is David Gilbert. David's article was called Categorising Gender in Queer Yangon, published in Sojourn, which is a journal of social issues in Southeast Asia. It was published in volume 28 um, in 2013. And the paper, as David's supervisor explained, is the first critical examination on non-normative gender and sexual identity in Myanmar and is an outstanding contribution to the study of gender and sexuality in Asia. His article makes an important contribution to feminist theories of gender and sexual identity as social constructs through David's efforts to unpack identity in a Burmese cultural context. 
and the editor of Sojourn praised David's article as well-informed scholarship in Myanmar that drew on real language ability and an excellent way for his journal to signal its commitment to publishing work in Myanmar of a very high standard. So in view of that, the um, Gender Institute felt that it was a great example of quality research in the specialist disciplines and, and um, was an article that advanced broader theoretical work in studies of gender and sexuality. So in his absence, let's all congratulate David Gilbert and his supervisor, Andrew. <laughs> Um, the honours prize will be awarded by Margaret Jump. Oh, how I enjoy our birthdays and uh, our third one. And thank you for everybody who's spoken before. It's really been quite a scintillating uh, occasion. Um, I wanted to start by thanking Michelle Antoinette and Gillian Russell, who joined with me in, in very pleasant uh, reading. I mean, we all really enjoyed ourselves. And again, in 2014, we want to say that this was an absolutely stellar cohort across a range of disciplines and fields. Again, we decided to award two equal first prizes which I think reflects both the quality and the diversity of research on gender and on sexuality here at, at ANU. So the first prize I'm going to announce is Harriet Mercer. Harriet is in the School of History, Research School of Social Sciences, College of Asia, uh, of Arts and Social Sciences. Her thesis was called Making Claims on the Empire, Interwar Australian Feminist Pursuit of Equal Imperial Citizenship Through the British Commonwealth League. Now, as we read it, this thesis involved exhaustive and probably exhausting original research in archives in both Australia and the UK, as well as a comprehensive survey of the literature. It explores how Australian feminists from the 1920s to 1930s made claims for equal citizenship with men across the British Empire through their leadership of the British Commonwealth League. It reveals those feminist passion and, quote, visceral attachment to a worldwide community of white Britons. It examines their struggle for married women's independent nationality in the face of those laws which from 1870 to 1920 stripped women, but not men, of their nationality and citizenship if they married aliens from beyond the borders of the empire. Quote, a woman's consent to marriage with an alien was taken as consent to expatriation. So witness the poignant case of Mrs. Rigo de Rigi, born in Australia of British ancestry, who happened to marry an Italian man in Hong Kong. Even though he became naturalised as a British subject, she lost her status as such. And even after his death, was denied renaturalisation re for several years. So this thesis, we thought, evinced the tensions between the imperial metropole and the nation of Australia, between claims of women's duties and equal rights to imperial citizenship, and the very fraught complexities in, in the intersection of gender and racial inequalities. It's admirably situated in debates about whiteness and feminist internationalism in this period. The writing's conceptually sophisticated, but lucid and accessible, and makes forensic use of primary and secondary sources. It is, in the words of one examiner, a model of the best of honours theses. So our congratulations to Harriet and to her supervisor, Angela Bullicott.
And the second uh, equal first prize for the honours thesis goes to Amir Pasha Perovi uh, in the ANU College of Law. Uh, his thesis was called Stabilising Gender from This Day Forward. It explores the requirement in Australian legislation that a person seeking to legally change their gender be unmarried or if they are married to be divorced. It shows how this discriminatory provision is based on a conception of gender as fixed rather than fluid. Earlier legal judgments were based on what was perceived as the biological sex of the person. Later judgments rather on the date of the marriage and narratives of, their gendered, of the gendered past of the person. It shows how the spectre of same-sex marriage haunts laws and adjudications, and how there is a palpable desire articulated for harmony between a person's anatomy, psychological identification, and performance of gender. In arguing against such discrimination inherent in Australian laws, Amir uses both case law and feminist and queer theories of gender as performance in scintillating and original ways. By revealing the heteronormative character of marriage, he also reveals the hegemonic power of ideas of temporality at work in the law. By privileging fixity rather than fluidity in gender performance, by conflating gender identity and sexual orientation, the state polices the borders of marriage, who is included, who is excluded, and forecloses future horizons of change through notions of always remaining the same, so from this day forward. It entices those who desire to legally change their gender, to leave marriages, to divorce in order to gain official recognition, and requires some evidence of corporeal gender crossing through surgical or hormonal intervention. As one of the examiners suggests, this was an extraordinary thesis, researched with precision and passion, and argued with a compelling lucidity. So our congratulations to Amir and to his supervisor, Subdean of Law, Wayne Morgan. Thank you. Congratulations to our winners. Um, the master's thesis will be announced by Professor Hilary Charlesworth. Thanks, Fiona. Well, unfortunately, our winner is not here, but it's uh, Shane Harrison, uh, also writing the College of Law, and he won the prize. His thesis title uh, is quite arresting. It's called Your Father is a Woman, theorising male-male sexual violence as a mechanism of identity warfare. So the reason it's sad that Shane can't be here today, but it's for a really great reason. He's been appointed gender advisor to Plan International and is now working in Timor-Leste, so we feel his skills are being put to very good use. <laughs> um, so his thesis deals with the rape of men by men in armed conflict. Uh, a subject that is really under-researched. It's avoided generally and it's under-researched. And not only does his thesis set out just to document the prevalence of male-male sexual violence, uh, and he does so in a very direct using testimony, so it's a very confronting thesis, but it also very interestingly proposes a new theoretical framework to analyse it based on a concept I hadn't come across before, which he calls identity warfare. 
and I just want to use the rest of my minute by saying Shane, in his uh, acknowledgements, gives a really warm acknowledgement to his supervisor, Wayne Morgan, who's here today. And I'd just like to note what I think is amazing over the years is how many of Wayne's students have gone on to win Gender Institute prizes. So even though we want to celebrate the student, I think somebody like Wayne, who's clearly got an amazing effect on his students, should also be recognised. <laughs> Okay, um, the PhD thesis prize will be announced by Professor Angela Woolacott. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be part of this terrific program today and to be able to announce the award of the PhD thesis prize on behalf of the judging committee, which included Dr. Fiona Jenkins and Dr. Kuntala Lahiri Dutt. And the three of us were agreed that we had a really high standard of submissions for this prize. The winner of this award is Dr. Ma Kin Mama Chi for her thesis, In Pursuit of Power, Politic, Patriarchy, Poverty and Gender Relations in New Order, Myanmar or Burma. The thesis was supervised by Professor Catherine Robinson and submitted in 2012 in the field of anthropology in the School of Culture, History and Language in the College of Asia and the Pacific. Ma's thesis is a stunning achievement. She shows how militarist and patriarchal repression have changed the lives of both women and men in Burma in the colonial era and the national period, and since then under military regimes which have used violence and have violated basic human rights. In contrast to their far greater social and economic power in earlier times, Burmese women now face multiple gender-based structural inequalities. Ma demonstrates how state policies have led to poverty increased sexual violence and exploitation, including prostitution and trafficking, and high rates of HIV AIDS. The thesis is remarkable in the scope and significance of the topic, the depth and breadth of the research and the scholarship on which it draws, and as an accomplishment that reflects Ma's acquisition of linguistic and scholarly skills. It is also a passionate feminist work with considerable political as well as analytical importance. In it, we see her own personal story and how she has overcome the research impediments of her exile from Burma, using what she calls anthropology at a distance to construct her compelling research and to tell the stories of so many. I congratulate her warmly on her achievement and this prize and wish her the very best in publishing this wonderful research. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you, Fiona. You did a wonderful job. You are doing a wonderful job. And it's worth to come and share with you all. You know, like I, I'm, I was 
fine, but now I'm a little bit emotional. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, this is the most precious award that I ever received. And I'd like to dedicate it to, this, to my mom, who dreamed of sending all of her five daughters to Oxford University. <laughs> But ended up not being able to see her own daughter before her passing. I had to leave Burma because of my work with Duong San Suu Kyi, then the Field Democracy Movement. Leaving Burma at a young age was hard, but being a woman was harder. I learned quickly how much gender matters and how gender power relationship underpins the whole realms of our existence. I saw many young, vulnerable, desperate women trapped in the web of gender inequality. Many of them are virtual, virtual slaves. Many sold their body to send money home. Many were sold by the others. Many girls died alone in a foreign land without realizing their dreams of going home. There were so many fears that these women have, fear of arrest, Fear of rape, fear of death, fear of humiliation, fear of sexual harassment, fear of losing traditional feminine dignity, fear of not being able to send money home, fear of not being a good mother or good daughter, and fear of not being able to take care of the old, the young, the sick, and the hungry. Whatever fear they have, they are real and not imagination. But the most insidious form of fear was clearly associated with gender. The borderlands was filled with fear, invisible fear, soul, and struggle of these women. I began to understand the role of gender power relations in shaping HIV environment, sexual violence, and trafficking of women because their fragile social fabric has been broken down and violence creep in to normalize their life. I set up an organization called FATE, Fight Against Trafficking and Exploitation. But then I was an illegal, and I was an undocumented. And that exiled woman dreaming of combating trafficking, which is owned by Thai police. So I had to escape. So my experience of with meeting these women led me to begin with my intellectual journey, a self-discovery of the academic, and finding a humanistic point of view, the heart of anthropology within oneself. I decided to do evidence-based transformative research to uncover and to understand the coming into being of these women, to highlight their plight, to uncover deeply rooted gender inequality, created under political ideologies, patriarchy cultures, and structural violence. I want to highlight this issue to empower women, to secure better humanity, to prevent further inhumane practices. I explore how gradual estrangement of women from power and a growth of multi, multiple gender-based structural inequality led to disastrous impacts such as prostitution, trafficking, and the high rate of HIV AIDS. But I still want to do something more for these women. Writing a thesis is not enough for me. I want to reach out beyond the academic circle to highlight inhumane lives, 
and 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 uh, and I want to discuss engender nature of social suffering. I want to give these women a chance to voice themselves. So I want to produce a documentary film called Dreams of Beautiful Daughter. A full PhD with a 50-minute documentary was almost impossible task. I was in a dark hole, not knowing any lights at all. But here, Gender Institute play a crucial role. I remember the return of Margaret Jolie from France. And I watched with amazement of how all the women, leading women pulled up together, joined together, and set up a gender institute in here. And it was like amazing for me. It is not just, um, uh, it is, it is the, in, the, in the, the gender institute is not just became ever more vibrant, visible, bigger and better. But for me, it is inspirational. Seeing all these women join together and making a difference. And, and, and also it is like, you know, you know making a changes and significance to gender study in ANU and beyond. It was like, you know, it is a role model for me. You know, when I was in that hole, I look at all, each and every one of you and wow, that is how it is. Just women get up, do it, you know, like, you know, whatever, pick up and, you know, go for it. Nothing will stop that. So actually, that, that is like you know, really inspirational. And this is Gender Institute Award. Of course, I am clearly biased. So it's like, you know, so actually, I like to thank. So this is each and every one of you make it possible, you know, inspirational and make it happen to me. I like to thanks to my supervisor, Kathy, who told me once, find your own what. And I hope I did not disappoint it. And Nick and Mandy, Adin, Wendy, uh, Melinda, Bridget, Pip, Pip Division, who made, who helped me to make it this dream of documentary film with her generosity. You know, like I know, without which it would not happen. Uh, Katie, um, Katie, Mish, Hannah, Ashla, you know, uh, Christine, Joe, you know. So and there's so many Donna, Wendy, and there's so many that I can so many people that I can thank. But you know who you are, and you know I thank you, even if I miss you, Lulu. So now let me let me conclude it. I was an ex-political prisoner, an activist, an exile, undocumented, illegal, a political refugee, and very insignificant. But now I reached to Oxford, a privileged recognition of from the Aung San Suu Kyi, and this Gender Institute Award at my home and celebrating with my family. And it is a closure of my survivor journey. But this is a struggle, sacrifice, strength, and support, and success of women in every way. Thank you. Thank you, Ma, and we were so delighted to award your thesis, and it's so wonderful that you were able to come. Fabulous. Congratulations to all our prize winners. Um, I'd like to conclude with some, some thanks to, as Ma says, this incredible network of women and uh, men and other genders who, um, who are involved in uh, really pushing forward uh, our um, ambitions as an institute. And um, I'd especially like to thank today Barbara Clare for all her hard work behind the scenes making today happen. <laughs>
And um, my fellow management committee members are Hilary Charlesworth, Kim Rubinstein, who's left, Margaret Jolly, and Inga Saris. And I must say that one of the things that my experience of the Gender Institute has been about is just the extraordinary experience of working with these incredibly talented women and the kind of mentorship and uh, guidance that one gets from working in that cohort is so invaluable and, um, and really wonderful to experience. And you do realize what you've been missing in the past. So thank you so much to all of you. I'll just conclude with thanking the ANU College deans and the Vice-Chancellor Ian Young for the support they provide to the Gender Institute. And once again, a huge thank you to Elizabeth Broderick for her wonderful, inspiring words today. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more. <laughs>